and that that's actually a very specific German accent that you hear so often, that very sort of stringent, we are here to study your brain, you know, that oh, whole thing. <laughs> and that's what everybody tends to do. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 99 of the Movie Bite podcast. We're going to talk about movies, movie reviews, movie news, trailers, and more. We're recording on Tuesday, July the 29th, 2014. I am TJ, your host, and breaking all the CIA and Interpol rules to bring you tonight's podcast. It is Joe Darnell and Clark Douglas. How are you, fine gentlemen, tonight? Good evening. Hey, TJ. Thank you for having us back. Oh, it's, yes. I mean, after last podcast where we argued and, and complained at each other so much, I thought about just finding some new co-hosts, but uh, I think that maybe we can make this one work out. What yeah, all is forgiven. We figured it all out, got the contracts working again. That was a close one, but, <laughs> you know, if you have to talk to my people and I have to talk to your people again, uh, TJ, you know, that might be it. And well, we Clark, I don't talk know if we can other. be friends anymore. That's on the rocks. Just <laughs> well, watch it, man. you know, and now that I, I've, personally cause this reconciliation between the two of you i can now say that my work is done and slowly kind of back out the door a little bit so well, i'll mean, take credit for that yeah and that's kind of the way it's working out unfortunately we're losing you after this <laughs> week uh something about uh, you got you know personal responsibilities and a baby and i don't know it seems, sounds like nonsense to me uh, i'll, I'll still like be available for life. nick fury style cameo appearances here and there you mean you'll show up at the end of the podcast and link it all together Exactly. Excellent. Excellent. Just tell everybody they're wrong and then leave. <laughs> no. Can you wear an eye patch? Would you uh, please do that for me? I'm sure that would uh, translate very well into a podcast format. Yes. Yeah. Good. I mean, we'll, we'll all be able to see it. Uh, anyway, this this will never make it into the show. We'll edit all this out. Um <clears throat> So I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, Community Season 6, and that might seem like an odd choice for somebody who doesn't watch Community, but the reason I would like to speak about it is because it is coming exclusively online. Yahoo picked up the the show for online uh, presentation, for online distribution, and they're doing something a little different from what Netflix has done. Um, uh, Kevin Jaggernoth uh, over at The Playlist uh, reports that while Yahoo has been Producing modest amounts of exclusive content, such as the unseen faux reality series Burning Love, the tech giant is set to challenge the likes of Netflix and Amazon in the prestige TV sweepstakes. At the end of June, Yahoo swooped in and saved Community from disappearing forever by ordering up a sixth season. And it wasn't long before movie talks emerged. But will the company squander its most high-profile programming asset by presenting it in a week-to-week schedule that viewers, especially online, have abandoned? That's hmm. what I would like to discuss. And, and Kevin, you know, gets a little bit playful with his words there and a little bit uh, the gloom and doomy. Um, but uh, I wanted to discuss the idea, you know, because Netflix, Netflix, you know, what we're familiar with with House of Cards and I guess I haven't watched it, but I guess Orange is the New Black. That's on Netflix, right? Yes. Um, they, they release full seasons at once and people binge watch them and they're over in a week and then all the hype dies down and, you know, everybody goes back about their lives and probably those who haven't finished, the, you know, the season hear the spoilers at work and it's kind of a frustrating experience for me. Um, and this is more along the lines of, hey, you can still watch this on demand, but we're going to meter it out one episode per week and you can watch it whenever you get ready to do so at one episode at a time. What do you guys think about this? And, and uh, maybe, Clark, we can start with you. What, what do you think of this approach as opposed to Netflix? 
I, I think it's an entirely valid approach, and I do think there are some shows, I don't know that I would count Community among them, but there are some shows that I think really benefit from being watched one episode at a time rather than being binge-watched. Um, I think, I don't know if, if either of you have watched Breaking Bad, um, but for me, that was a show I was watching on television as it aired, and those one-week gaps between episodes were basically an essential part of the viewing experience because they gave you time to really chew on what you'd seen and anticipate and make guesses about what you would see. And all of that would have been gone um, if I just, you know, kind of chugged through it at an alarming rate. Mm. So so I, I think, you know, th- they're both valid ways to watch TV. On the other hand, if you are binge watching something, then you're perhaps able to retain little details maybe a little bit better than you would be if you were watching week to week and taking summer breaks and so on. But... um yeah, so basically my my very definitive answer is that they're both valid approaches and I think they're both interesting and I don't have an opinion, really. <laughs> okay. Joe, let's let's uh let's see what you have to say about this. Okay. Well, yeah, I have to agree with Clark and add to it that, you know, I think a lot of people are not going to watch it right now when these episodes come out brand new. And so what they're going to do is they're going to wait till all the seasons are available and they will binge watch if that's what they care about and that's what they want to do. And, uh, you know, that's just what some people care to do. That's their, that's their style. And other people, they want a steady pace. They can really appreciate it, like Clark is saying, where they get to mull over things from episode to episode. And I'm at a disadvantage here, too, on that note, because I've been going through the Game of Thrones where I binge watch. So we get a DVD. We have two to four episodes on that DVD. We watch them really quickly, and we get it back into the mailbox. And it's really frustrating because whenever I do have conversations with friends about the Game of Thrones series, they they like to throw out the episode, you know, you remember that episode there at the beginning of season three when blah, blah, blah happened. Or they may even be more specific and they'll say, do you remember episode blank? And they'll give it the title or episode number. And uh, because I'm kind of binge watching them on DVD, I don't have that kind of pacing. I, I'm like... Uh, sorry. Uh, can you tell me what DVD that was on? Because I can't remember if it was the third or the second DVD or the, you know, the second episode on the first, you know, it just, it doesn't really click. So really where it hampers me is when I'm just trying to socialize about movies and talk about them with friends because they feel like I haven't watched anything. And no, really guys, I really have been watching the game of Thrones. Just so you know, it was disc four around 97 minutes in that bit that you were looking for. Ah, ah, every time. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> well, my my opinion is that um, I I'm, I'm I actually like this approach better. Um, I really prefer the one episode a week model. And this the the, the problem that I've run into personally with uh, you know with with uh, House of Cards is that I don't have time to binge watch House of Cards. Much as I would like to, as much as I would would love to stay up until you know, uh, 6.30 and go get a half hour of sleep before I get up <laughs> at 7 and, and, and go to work. Um, no, I really wouldn't like to do that. Um, but Aren't you it, really tempted to do that, though, <laughs> no, TJ? It's really tempting. I'm actually not. Uh, I, I would be if I was younger. I, I'll put it that way. I'm, I'm not the spring chicken that, 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 that I once was uh, at the ripe old age of 32. It's just... Uh, <laughs> anywho... Um, so I, I I prefer this approach though because it meters kind of it keeps everybody on the same page. You know, even if I don't watch it the night it comes out, I'll probably get to watch it the next night, and then I'll be caught up with everybody else. And so I only have one day of trying to avoid spoilers for that one episode if I don't catch it the night it comes out, uh, and then 
you know, I can, you know, everybody's on the same page at work and among your friends and your peers, and you can discuss it. Now, again, I, I know nothing of community. I don't know if community is that kind of show. I feel like House of Cards would really benefit from that sort of conversation. It would keep the hype up longer. It feels like it'd be better for them anyway. Um, and it would certainly, to me, be a better approach. Um, you know, I know because so we're, I, I guess what I'm saying is we're throwing away the baby with the bathwater and going to this online uh, distribution model, which I love. Don't get me wrong. I, I love on demand content. Uh, it, it is, to me, a much better model than, hey, make sure you sit your butt down in front of the TV at you know eight o'clock when your programming starts. And if you miss it, you miss it. And. I just I don't work that way and life doesn't work that way. So um, so I, I guess I just want to balance between the two approaches. Does that, does that make see, sense? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Can, can either of y'all see Netflix changing their approach in the future? Or do you think that there's really a demonstration from the market as a whole that one will out uh, survive the other? Will we see that more of these online you know productions uh, go the way of Yahoo and maybe Netflix turns that direction or are more studios going to imitate the Netflix fashion? It's hard to say. I know there are more people than Yahoo who are taking the weekly approach. Amazon actually has some original programs and they do the one episode a week deal. Um, but Netflix has gotten a lot of positive feedback, at least from the news stories I've read and such, on their uh, kind of release everything at once format. It's, it gives people a bit of a rush, and uh, it's something that's distinctive to them. I think they'll stick with it for a good long while. Yeah, I agree, unfortunately. Um, and and I, I think that maybe I am in the minority, or maybe maybe it's the current state of the market. Like in a few years, we can go back to something a little more traditional in the way in that way. Or not, I don't know, but I, I do think I'm I'm probably in the minority of the market. Mm. I, uh, you know, I'm 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 somebody who thinks about these things a lot. I think about films a lot. I think about the distribution models a lot, and most people don't. And mm-hmm. you know, uh, so to me, the experience that I want, I, I don't even think people are really thinking about the experience so much as, hey, this thing is available, and I'm going to go watch it, and it's all available, and that's even better. You know, that I, right. I unfortunately I think that's where the market is at. Yeah, I mean, you're right. There are a lot of people out there who are like, well, do I want one episode now or do I want all the episodes now? I want all of them, you know, Right. <laughs> which, you know, is. So do uh, either of you there, watch There's community? a defensible argument to be made for that, but it's also a little bit childish. Oh, I agree. What were you saying, Joe? Well, do either of you watch community? I do. Okay, because I caught an episode for the first time last week uh, while I was on vacation. Was it worth being renewed? It was the episode with Black Jack acting like an idiot, but it was pretty... Yeah, Black yeah, Jack? Yeah, Jack, uh, Jack Black. <laughs> yes. Yeah, him too. So, so Clark, as a, more in it. as a watcher of Community, would you say it was worthy of being renewed for a sixth season? I, I would say so. Um, here's the sort of brief history of Community. Uh, it had The first three seasons were terrific seasons of television, and they were all run by a guy named Dan Harmon, who right. was something of a comic genius. And then he was fired by NBC uh, for the fourth season because of various conflicts taking place between him and the upper management. Right. And the fourth season was really bad. It, it really was. And at that point, I was ready to see Community canceled. But then because so many people were upset about how the fourth season had turned out, they said, well, okay, we'll bring Dan Harmon back. And the fifth season was really good again. Kind of unprecedented so, almost to bring, yeah, to bring it, a show creator back. It really is, um, but I think the fan base just sort of turned on them so much, and one of the most loved shows on television became one of the most criticized shows on right, television just right. overnight. And so, uh, yeah, I, I'm glad it'll get you know a chance to 
to wrap things up with this final season. I understand it will be the last season of Community, from what people are saying. Hmm. But yeah. yeah, yeah, I'm glad it's coming back. You got to wonder what all kind of rights management was involved for 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 Yahoo to get a hold of this thing. Hmm. Well, speaking about strange things that production companies do. So uh, the dark. Uh, what is this? Star Trek into Darkness? Yes. Soundtrack? Yes. What is wrong with these people? <laughs> what, not making it available via iTunes? <sighs> yeah, it's, TJ, it's, you, you know, want to talk a, about this? Yeah, because this is kind of my thing, and, and I know, Clark, you'll, as a, as a music guy, you'll have something to say about this as well. And, and maybe people prefer the experience of this limited edition physical disc only thing. I, I don't know. Yeah. But, but to me, like, I've long ago given up physical media for my music and would like to get away from physical media for... For my movies, although that's proving to be challenging, and I have a lot more Blu-rays than I thought I ever would, but um, for music, I, I have long moved away from mm. the physical format, and I really want this, but it is only available on physical format. I guess I could rip the things, and and then I would have them, but you know, I've, I've been moving to this model where all of my music is you know bought via iTunes, and I can re-download it again at any time. It, it's just a little frustrating to me. Yeah, so the story, though, was that the Star Trek Into Darkness has a deluxe edition of the soundtrack, and the this was uh, discussed on treknews.net. And it's only available, though, through this one website that I've never heard of. And I, the website doesn't impress me. It doesn't seem like the kind of place I would visit for uh, a trustworthy source for a special edition of a significant production's you know, Let's say soundtrack. it looks dated. And I'm not saying that there is actual, you know, problems with the website. I, I, if I actually would consider to buy this soundtrack from the site, I would have to take probably five or ten minutes to actually check out their credibility because it just doesn't strike me as the place where I'd go to buy if, a Star Trek Into Darkness soundtrack. If I can sort of speak to this for a moment. Um, Please do. This website uh, that you're talking about, it's a company called Varese Saraband. And they are one of the oldest soundtrack labels in the business, and I would also say one of the most reliable. Um, I've ordered from them many, many times, and I've never had a problem. Um, And I've heard from those who have had problems that their customer service has been very good and so on and so forth. But, yeah, they're they're, they're a very reliable website. They do need a a redesign, I definitely (laughs) agree. It's it's looking very dated. But uh, these guys are some of the best in the business when it comes to soundtracks. And as for the, the sort of limited release... Film music can be a very complicated thing in terms of the contractual agreements as far as soundtrack releases go. And these uh, special edition releases that they do, uh, they're only able to get permission to sell a certain number of them. Usually that number is maxed out at 3,000. But every now and then for something really special, and they seem to feel this one was, they can raise that number up to five or 6,000. Um, there are 6,000 copies of this particular deluxe edition being made available. But uh, I don't know all of the reasons behind why that is and why they're not allowed to sell them digitally. Uh, but there are several companies that do this, and they do have to sell a very specific number of actual physical releases or they don't get to sell it at all. That's just the way that it works. And again, um, it's something having to do with the fact that these particular releases are being geared at film music collectors specifically and not the general public necessarily. And so they're able to get a slightly better financial deal because of that. It's, it's a complex legal setup, but um, that's the scenario. Yeah. I, um, I, I guess I find it frustrating. I, I, and maybe I'll go ahead and order this. It's, you know, it's $26 and 98 cents. 
Um, uh, so I'm looking at the track list here. Um, my my version of Star Trek in the Darkness soundtrack, I, and I was a little disappointed when I got it because um, some of the music that I really enjoyed from the movie was just not on the soundtrack that I purchased, which is common when it first comes out. Um, as, as particularly, I wanted more, because uh, I remember a lot of it in the movie, and I wanted more of that uh, Khan's tritone theme. He's got those three notes. That, that I really enjoyed that theme, and I'm hoping that this deluxe soundtrack has more of that. So I have uh, 15 tracks in the uh, soundtrack that I got when it initially came out. Disc 1 of this deluxe edition has 31 tracks. Disc 2 has 20 tracks. Um, so this is definitely something I'd like to get my hands on, and maybe I'll go ahead and do it. But And the, the tracks that look most promising to me are at the end of Disc 2. There's a couple of lengthy tracks called Ode to Harrison and Ode to Vengeance, which look like they might be uh, sort of lengthy theme suites of sorts. Yes. Um, so I'm looking forward to hearing those. But... The, the only, my only real disappointment with the Star Trek Into Darkness score was that the main theme didn't really evolve very much. And Giacchino had indicated that it would uh, when he wrote the Star Trek score, that he felt the theme was basically unfinished and had places to go. And I, I didn't really hear that, but mm-hmm. it's still yeah. a fine score. You're right. The primary score, the, like the beginning and the end of the movie, didn't like the end is actually a complete, almost a complete replay of, mm-hmm. of the one from the first film. The yeah. the uh, beginning of the movie is is very much so as well, not quite as much maybe. I, I can hear subtle differences, but the rest of the film, I thought, especially like I said, Khan's theme really had some some great stuff. So I really did like the soundtrack. Um, you know, it, despite despite my annoyances that Jakino really doesn't, I feel pay as much homage. I don't want him to to repeat music that's been done before, but I'd like a little more homage thrown in there. Mm-hmm. You know, I guess, but that's neither here nor there. Um, mm. I'm just frustrated that that this is not available on iTunes. Interesting. Yeah. And again, there, as somebody who um, I have to admit kind of sticks to Amazon MP3, it it doesn't affect me as much, but it's not available there either. Hmm. Well, why don't we um, why don't we move on to uh, the um, Mockingjay Part One, the first real teaser trailer. Listen to me. No one else can do this but her. She won't be able to handle it. The game's destroyed her. We need to unite these people out there. She's the face of this rebellion. They'll follow her. Any association with the Mockingjay symbol is forbidden. Um, this is also directed by Francis Lawrence, um, who uh, directed the previous film. Uh, he did not direct the first film. Uh, that that honor went to oh, why is my why am I why is my mind failing me all of a sudden? Um, who directed the first film? Please help me. Uh, that would be that guy. Oh, Gary Ross. Yes, Thank Gary you. Ross. There it is. Thank um, you, brain. Uh, kick back into gear there for both of us. Um, mostly for you. <laughs> so this is the first teaser trailer that we've had for the Mockingjay, uh, part one. Well, I should say the first actual live footage teaser trailer. We've had those, those wonderful, um, little, uh, uh, kind of, uh, you know, the commercials that you would, that, that were actually like produced in the Capitol kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and those were fun, but, but this was, I think, getting, you know, a little more t- geared towards, uh, you know, the movie and, 
I don't know. I'm I'm really looking forward to this because I I enjoyed the books quite a bit. Um, I do have some reservation about where they're you know because I I would say that the third book of the series, which was the last book of the series, there will be four movies. There were three books. It didn't end quite the way I would have wanted it to, and I don't know what it should have been. I just feel like it was not what I wanted it to be. I'm interested to see if they're going to you know stick to the book completely or you know kind of help that ending a little bit. I don't know. But Francis Lawrence did such an amazing job with the uh, previous film that I'm really looking forward to this. What about you guys? I'm looking forward to it because there's really nothing quite like it for teenagers. And I think that the, the, uh, the young adult fiction did its part and it did it well. Tells a good story, interesting story. And uh, kind of along the lines of what I've heard from lots of people that the first film or first novel really is their favorite in the series. The other two do a good job to tidy things up, but really the first one is their favorite. I would certainly like to see them find a way to make the stories in the films work better than they do in the novels. If that's the case, because while it's a, it's an enjoyable film and it, you know, dabbles with things that are, you know, relatively unchallenged themes for young audiences I think that it had a lot of room to grow because it, it introduces a lot of problems. And this is something that really bugs me, TJ. Uh, actually, I think you both could appreciate this, that, you know, it's not enough for a movie to introduce a lot of interesting questions about how society works. If uh, they cannot find an interesting way to get, offer a solution then it frustrates me in the long run because it's much easier to come up with clever uh, questions than it is for to come up with a clever answer to them. And I'm not saying that it needs to be the right answer. Uh, you know, there's more than one way to skin a cat or to fix society. So I would like to see the films try to make a real noble effort to approach the problems they have introduced in the first film in a different way a way that would be much more gratifying than what we typically see with this fair. Would y'all agree? My only problem with that notion is that if there's a really good convincing answer out there on how to make a society great and wonderful again, um, you know, somebody in the real world ought to find it. Uh, (laughs) So, you know, I, I don't, I don't know that that's, that's actually achievable. And I, I do think there are instances where, where questions can be more interesting than answers. Answers are inevitably, because of the nature of real life, almost always more of a disappointment than the questions are. Sure. But uh, as for the movie itself, I'm really looking forward to it because I do think Francis Lawrence um, was a huge step up from Gary Ross. The second film, for me, was a considerable improvement on the first. And uh, I'm really liking the way this this franchise is heading at this point. I have heard a lot of people claim that the third book is the weakest. I haven't read them, so I can't speak to that myself. But, um, yeah, I'm curious to see where they'll go. And uh, they certainly seem to have a solid foundation right at the moment. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I, I agree that, um, you know, you, you can... Uh you can sometimes it can be a better movie sometimes if if there are you know questions and not necessarily answers i mean um and and to be to be fair i think in the book there are some answers but there are a lot of questions and and it certainly doesn't end on a hey everything's perfect everything's resolved note right um, and and you know i'm not even saying that that's the part of part of the ending of the books that i don't like so 
Um, you know, and I, I'm definitely looking forward to, um, here, here's the thing. I, I liked the first film just fine. Um, in retrospect, after Francis Lawrence said, you know what, here's what we can do. We can do so much better. <laughs> I might have to, if I were to compare them now, I might almost downgrade my star rating of the first one because, man, Francis Lawrence took this thing above and beyond, you know, leaps and bounds better than the first one. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it made me want to retroactively downgrade the first one, that that sort of thing. So I'm really looking forward to see if he can bring that same level of um, of sensibility to this film, and if he can do that to his own film, like, will we say that the second installment is not as good as, as we thought it was because the third one's even better? I don't know. Um, you know, and this does have, I don't know how much, and I don't know whether there will be le- likely to be less on the cutting room floor of Philip Seymour Hoffman since he has passed away that they will be more likely to leave more of him in in the you know in the cutting room who knows about that and that that will be interesting to see as well and i understand too this won't affect this movie as much uh, but as it will affect the next one that he still had a major scene to film when he passed on uh, that's what i understand too they said about a week of filming left yeah and that Ouch. was mostly comprising one big scene yeah so mm. i'm curious to see what they'll do um Hopefully not some horrible CGI Philip Seymour Hoffman, but you never know. <laughs> I think I, I uh, boy, I seem to remember reporting on Movie Byte that they have said there will be no CGI Philip Seymour Hoffman, at least not not full on. Here he is talking, you know, or here he is in a big scene. CGI Philip Seymour Hoffman. It, that's, right. I seem to remember reading something like that. Um, I don't think it'd be very easy to pull it off anyway without him to scan in for the CG animation model. You forget what they did with. Uh, uh, What's what's her name? That commercial, uh, Audrey Hepburn. Audrey Hepburn. Yes, you forget what they did with her. I I can see why you would say that. I think it would be much more difficult though to take it all full on, where you want to you know really show off a performance and give him lines and various expressions more than just a smiley face and a casual glance to the left and right from a you know a camera that even seemed shy of showing the CGI Audrey Hepburn in the commercial. Although True. it pays off, it seems like the camera was shy and didn't want to get close to her. So. You know, without, without knowing what the scene is and what they're trying to accomplish in the scene, it's, it's you know, difficult to tell what options they have. But it could be something yeah. where they could essentially give the scene to another character who um, you know, represents a similar point of, point of view. Or do something really cheesy, like have one character come into the room and say, you guys, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman's character just told me this amazing thing, and it was a great speech, and you can't see it, but let me tell you about it, because it was great. Mm, <laughs> so I'm sure they won't do I can that. see them doing that. No, I don't think I Francis Lawrence would do that. One but it is not. it is interesting, because you know even after principal photography was, has ended, there are often, there are, I would say more often than not even, Actors are brought back in for pickups and little scenes and things that just when they get into the editing room, they're they, you know and, and stuff is happening. They're like, oh, we really need this, and they obviously don't have that option anymore with with Philip Seymour Hoffman. So, right, it will definitely be interesting to see if the movie is affected by that. And, and again, we'll see that more. This movie, as I understand, was complete, um, even though they were filming them kind of at the same time. This movie is complete. The next movie, you know, the next you know Mockingjay Part Two might might suffer some more from that. So. It's going to be interesting to follow, and I'm definitely looking forward. I, I feel like Philip Seymour Hoffman was the perfect, uh, you know, uh, guy to play Plutarch uh, Heavensby. So uh, I'm definitely looking forward to it. And he's given a fairly prominent presence in the teaser trailer that we see. Yeah, well, and, and again, who knows how much of that is, uh, you know, kind of paying tribute to him as well. But right, um, the, the only part of the teaser I will say that I didn't like. Um, 
was the line at the end struck me as a little corny. That whole, are you here to fight? Are you here to fight with us? Bit, it, you know, but yeah, you know, I suppose you can't it really didn't... judge a movie by its teaser trailer. And, so. that, and it didn't bother me that much either personally, but I don't know. Every, everybody has different lines of cheesiness, I suppose. <laughs> speaking of cheesy, speaking of cheesy, watch me, watch me master this transition. Joseph Darnell. <laughs> uh, I'm waiting. Paul Rudd and Peyton Reed uh, address Edgar Wright's Ant-Man exit. And uh, the reason I say cheesy is because the whole Ant-Man thing, the whole idea of an Ant-Man just seems oh, cheesy to me. I, I'm, not quite the cheesy, master, I'm, I'm not quite the master of your, your transitions here, man. That's okay. That's okay. A little cheese goes a long way for you, TJ. Ants like cheese, right? <laughs> they do, actually. Um, so so uh, Paul Rudd and Peyton Reed are both addressing the Edgar Wright departure from Ant-Man. Um, and, uh, let's just, let's just summarize it and say, it feels to me like, uh, they're kind of stuck in contract. Uh, certainly Paul Rudd is. And so they're going to make the best of it. I don't know. What do you guys think? I think the most interesting thing about this post is the thumbnail, uh, where we see Ant-Man fighting alongside of other ants, real ants a, alongside of him. That's just a comic book photo I pulled. That's, that's pretty <laughs> rad. He, he looks like he's ready to like grab the football and run and the football may or may not be one of the ants heads, but you know, so the V. I mean, like, okay, so what? We don't really know what this message means from the director and the producer parties because, you know what? Like you said, you know, the director might just want you to have warm, fuzzy feelings in the audience because it makes all the producers and the production studio happier if he is, you know, held by some binding contract that he uh, supports the film no matter what. And well, so I don't know that we can really trust a statement like this. You know, these guys are, are a big part of this movie. Obviously, the star and the director, they're not going to come out and just say, oh, well, now that Edgar Wright's gone, our film is just going to be awful, but we're going to do our best. You know, that they have to sort of put on a brave face and, right, and make right. it look as good as they can. And Paul Rudd, in particular, did seem genuinely disappointed. I mean, even though he's not able to really speak fully about his feelings on the situation, he did say that Edgar Wright was essentially the reason he came to this project in the first place. And that he had to think long and hard about staying with it after Edgar Wright departed. Uh, so this was clearly an important factor for him. But, um, you know, I, I imagine it's it's also a pretty lucrative part for him still, even with the mm-hmm. controversy. So something he feels is worth sticking with, I guess. Well, if I can get you, if I can wrangle you an interview with uh, Kevin Feige, I imagine you'd have a piece of your mind you'd like to give him. <laughs> I, I, I would, but but I'm sure he would not deign to deign to have a conversation with me. Uh, you never know. You never know. I'll see. Okay. I'll see what I can do. I'll, I'll, I'll keep. I'll keep an eye on my inbox. I'll talk to my people, and my mm-hmm. people will talk to his people and your people, and we'll, our people will all collaborate, and we'll we'll make it happen. Keep in mind, this is we're talking about a movie about Ant Man, so it, it wouldn't it, it wouldn't be but, you know, like. But Joe, I I mean, I'd never heard of Guardians of the Galaxy to speak of, you know, before all the hype about you know and the trailers and things started coming out, and it looks fantastic. And, you know, it's just a sequel to the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, right? <sighs> anyway, uh, <laughs> I'm not going to touch that. Um, I, I feel like, you know, Marvel usually has a way of turning things around. They have a way of getting you interested, um, and they have a way of making good films for that matter. They've, even the ones that I don't like are good enough. Um, you know, Iron Man 2, I, I love to complain about Iron Man 2, but you know, if you want to compare it to say Man of Steel, I mean, it sleeps and bounds better. So, mm. well, and you know, uh, rarely have a 
characters' particular superpowers or abilities informed how well the actual story turned out. I mean, it's just a starting point. That's all it is. Sure. And, uh, you know, the, really, when you think about it, there's there's nothing any sillier about an Ant-Man than there is about a whole lot of the superheroes that are out there. So Spider-Man comes to mind. It, 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 exactly. But, you know, because Spider-Man is more conventionally popular and has been ingrained in pop culture for a lengthier amount of time right. than Ant-Man, we just sort of accept that. Oh, yeah, Spider-Man. He's a spider guy. He shoots uh, webs out of his wrist. That makes sense. Yeah. I mean, so. <laughs> to, to me, when you, when you really stop and think about it, Spider-Man is just as weird as Ant-Man. But you're right. I Even when I was growing up, Spider-Man was a thing. And, and it's kind of ingrained in the culture and certainly in my consciousness. When you think of Spider-Man, you think superhero. We did not grow up. I did not grow up with Ant-Man. So when I think of Ant-Man, I think, really? Ants? Ew. What? what? <laughs> you know? Uh, so, you know, I... I think that it's entirely possible that this would be a great film. Well, and, you know, I've always wondered sometimes, too, what we would think of some of these superhero concepts that are so popular if we came to them as adults rather than having them with us from childhood. Like if we just now were introduced to Batman, what would we think of a guy who dresses up like a bat and goes out and beats people up at night with that? I don't know. Would it seem as just wildly cool as it does? Swear to me! (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Uh, All right. So anyway. that's that's Ant Man and uh, Paul Rudd is putting on the brave face and Peyton Reed says it's going to be great and Paul Rudd is, says he's genuinely happy with where things are going. So and Adam McKay, <laughs> uh, the comedy director, apparently came in and did some fine tuning on the script. So I'm curious to see hmm. what contributions the director of Anchorman and Talladega Nights will have <laughs> to bring to this movie. All right. Okay. One more thing I'd like to discuss, and then we'll move on to our review. Um, and that is that Pierce Brosnan is back in action uh, in the trailer for The November Man. Peter Devereaux. You know what we used to call you? The November Man. Because after you pass through, nothing lived. Peter, you need to look at this. It's Alice. She's in trouble. She has information on the agency that they'll kill to keep secrets. If you want her to live, you gotta get back in the game. Excuse me, there is a call for you. Yes, hello? Listen to me very carefully. The woman you're with is a killer. Turn around. I'm right behind it. This obviously stars Pierce Brosnan. Um... And, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I haven't seen him in much of anything recently. Maybe I haven't been looking in the right places. Um, you know, on, on the one hand, I'm kind of like, okay, uh, so this is another one of those old action stars feeling the need to make a comeback. Uh, but then on the other hand, you know, I feel like one of those at least was very successful with Red. Um, you know, several action stars kind of coming together, old action stars, and, and making a, a great film. So, I don't know. Do you think this has any merit? Do you think this is going to go anywhere, Clark? What do you think? Um, it, the trailers at least look kind of forgettable to me. Uh, it, it looks like a fairly generic action movie and maybe it's just misleading marketing, but I'm not really seeing anything that will permit this to stand out and really rejuvenate Pierce Brosnan's career at this point. So just the fact that Pierce Brosnan is in it doesn't have you, uh, interested. No. And I mean, I do like Pierce Brosnan and, uh, but he, he's got a knack for bringing considerable talents to less than worthy movies. He's done a lot of bad movies over the course of his career. Um, and honestly, some of the more interesting parts I've seen him in in recent years have been kind of uh, smaller sort of supporting actor character parts. And I'd like to see him try that sort of thing more often. 
Um, I don't know if either of you saw the movie The Ghost Rider with Ewan McGregor. I did um, not. About three or four years ago. That was a really good one. And I enjoyed his little part in Edgar Wright's The World's End, too. Uh, that was a fun little role. But yeah, it's been a while since he's done a really memorable or impressive movie uh, that he was the center of. Well, for me, uh, Pierce Brosnan will always be Remington Steele. So, well, sure. <laughs> that's uh, kind of where he got his start, really, and that's to me that's still his best work. <laughs> uh, but, but you know, I don't know. Um, I'm I'm kind of interested just because, again, I, I think maybe my opinion is sort of colored and tainted by how much I like the Red series, both films, which which most people don't. So, um, you know, we'll see. Joe, what what are you, what are you thinking? I kind of agree with Clark. I just think that we'll have to see the film to know whether it's really appreciable because we have a lot of action films out these days and this one feels like it's just taking all of the most essential ingredients and adding uh, you know, a little bit of salt to make it seem new and different, but it's just the same old stuff. So Yeah. Yeah, I, there's just I think, there's like Pierce. There's nothing about it that just jumps out at you and makes you think, Man, I need to see that movie. You know, but we may feel different when it comes to November. That's true. Well, I mean, we'll probably review it, so we'll, we'll we will check back in and and we'll see. So I'll mention the the last looking at his IMDb resume. The the last Pierce Brosnan film that he was the star of that I really liked was uh, all the way back in two thousand five. He starred in The Matador with Greg Kinnear, uh, sort of a comedy drama where he plays a a hitman who's losing his touch, and uh, that was a really good movie. Yeah. Oh yeah, I saw that. That was good. Yeah, in a, in a roundabout way, it was good, it, and, and a really good performance from him in it too. A very sort of a, a kind of a one eighty turn from James Bond, just somebody who was supposed to be like that sort of character, but just wasn't any good at it really. Hmm. Yeah, you know, it's interesting um, when you, when you say James Bond uh, to me, I think of Pierce Brosnan, even though I've I've never seen a Pierce Brosnan James Bond film. <gasps> Um, what I know, isn't that weird? I, I mean, how is that this, possible? This is, this is the thing. I mentioned this the other day, actually, because I've been thinking about this a lot. There's so many films I haven't seen that I want to see. This is the problem with coming into my love of movies so late in life, and 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 you know, not being allowed to watch you know James Bond when I was younger, um, and it just never came back around, and and I didn't discover my love of movies until later. That that's the kind of what the problem is here. Well, the, the Stranger Things have happened. Like we all picture that James Earl Jones is uh, Mark Hamill's father, and you know Carrie Fisher's <laughs> father because you know he's Darth Vader. So anyway, as I was saying, you know when when you say when you say James Bond to me, I picture Pierce Brosnan. When you say James Bond to say my dad he he pictures uh, uh sean connery. connery yeah yeah um so it's interesting and then when you say uh, james bond i think to much younger people um they they picture uh what's his face the, the latest actor um, daniel, daniel craig. craig daniel craig who's not as good of a bond in my opinion but um anyway uh yeah it's interesting so so i guess to me it's like oh there's james bond back in action but it's not james bond i don't know so We'll see. I, I'm I'm interested. I I can I agree with you though that it it very it very well could be you know they've added as you say Joe they've added a little salt to the mix and they're calling it new and it's it's you know just a rehash of old stuff. I don't know. Mm-hmm. You just a just a you know collage of of action movie tropes. I would like to know uh, well, where the name came came from. You know why would he be called the November Man? Yeah, they tried to explain that in the trailer and it made no sense to me. I, I have to say here because I, I don't often enough get a chance to to talk about this uh, and I'll take any excuse I can get one of the Pierce Brosnan Bond movies has the single best supervillain plot 
uh, I've ever seen, which is there's a supervillain who runs a 24-hour CNN-style news network, and in order to generate great ratings for himself, he causes <laughs> tragedies around the world, and he's the first person to report on them. I was like, that is the best idea any villain has ever come up with. That sounds a little bit like Syndrome, who, you know, developed that really bad monster dude for the Incredibles, and, and then uh-huh. he's supposed to swoop in and save everybody. It's a similar concept, yeah. Yeah. I yep. can anyway. see that. All right, well, shall we move into our review of A Most Wanted Man? Yes, sure. Let's this see. is A Most Wanted Movie. German intelligence needs a job to be done. There's a German law won't let it do. Our unit was set up to develop resources. We're not policemen. We're spies. Our sources don't come to us. Hi, Oliver. Good to see you. We find them. When they're ours, we direct them at bigger targets. It takes a minnow to catch a barracuda, a barracuda to catch a shark. They're moving. You can't do this. I'm a lawyer. Lawyer. Right, social worker for terrorists. You've crossed the line. You're on their side now. I'm frightened. Not just by. Can't do this anymore. You're my ears or my eyes. I need you. So Most Wanted Man was released on July the 25th. The budget seems to be unavailable. Um, a, somebody put in here after I came after I did this that a Rachel McAdams fan forum says that the budget was $15 million. That seems about right for what I saw on the screen. Yeah, that that seems about right to me, too. And granted, I'll, I'll mention, too, that figure was thrown out just before the film was about to start shooting. And mm. things can obviously change during the filming process. But, well, I was yeah, gonna, that, that seems close to the right mark. I mean, if I were guessing, I would say 15 to 20 million. Yeah. Um, opening weekend, it brought in 2.6 million, and that is, of course, uh, as it's a you know it hasn't opened worldwide. It's just opened domestically, and that was this weekend. That is the current total worldwide gross. Um, Rotten Tomatoes says that it's smart, subtle, and steadily absorbing. A most wanted man proves once again that John Lecare. Lacare. I, I knew. I figured it had to be like French or something. Um, so j- that John Lacare books make for sharp, thoughtful thrillers. Um, Clark, can you tell me who directed this film? <laughs> I can. Uh, his name is Anton Corbine. Corbine, okay. Yes. Um, written, written by Andrew Bovell, uh, the screenplay, and John Lacare uh, wrote the novel that the film is based on. Uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman stars as Gunther uh, Bachman. Uh, Rachel McAdams plays Annabelle Richter, an uh, attorney, allegedly. Um yeah, Clark, how do you pronounce this next name? I'm going to guess Grigory Dobrigan. Grigory Dobrigan plays Issa, uh, Issa Karpov. <laughs> um, why do I have a podcast where I have to pronounce all these names? It's terrible. I'm, 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 I was homeschooled. I, I don't know. I don't know how to pronounce things. I just know how to read them. <laughs> Someone ought to provide us the English translations of these foreigners' names. <laughs> uh, Willem Dafoe played Tommy Brew. Robin Wright played Martha Sullivan. Um, and... Uh, Help me out here, guys. Uh, I'm going to guess Hamayun Urshadi. <laughs> Hamayun Urshadi. We'll go with that. He played Abdullah. The composer was Herbert uh, Gronmeyer. Um, and Clark, you're, you're our resident music expert. You have a music podcast. Tell us a little bit about him. Uh, Herbert Gronemeyer is somebody who hasn't really done a lot of uh, prominent stuff. In fact, his most prominent film score before this movie was probably Anton Corbine's uh, previous film, The American with George Clooney. 
he's also an actor. He's actually got a small role in A Most Wanted Man as one of the uh, German government bureaucrats. Uh, yeah, so, so he's done a bit of acting over the years and different things and uh, composes here and there. So uh, not a guy who's done a lot of stuff in any category, but always pretty good at what he does. So, uh, And I, I liked his music for this effort, too. Yeah, and 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 often as is the case with these, uh, would you call them lower key films or not? You know, not not um, not high action films. It's just as important when when you score, when you don't, how you bring the score in. And I I, I felt like this movie hit most of those notes right. Yeah. Um. Where where the music would come in, you know, there there would be something you know dramatic happening, and it would kind of wait and kind of hold back, and then it would kind of come in and and bring in the subtle undertones, and I felt like it was definitely really good choices in terms. I don't remember the music specifically, but I remember it being good choices about where to score. That's always important, I think, in a film like this. Yeah. Um. So, Joe, why don't you uh, tell us about the storyline, and then we'll we'll kind of dive in and discuss this film. Right. So when a half Chechen, half Russian, brutally tortured immigrant turns up in Hamburg's Islamic community, laying claim to his father's ill-gotten fortune, both German and U.S. security agencies take a close look uh, at, at him and their interests. As the clock ticks down and the stakes rise, the race is on to establish, establish this most wanted man's true identity, oppressed victim or destruction-bent extremist. Based on John Le Carre's novel, A Most Wanted Man, is a contemporary cerebral tale of intrigue, love, rivalry, and politics that prickles with tension right through to the last heart-stopping scene. That, that, that last sentence, the last part of the last sentence, the, the heart-stopping scene, uh, <laughs> they're reaching a little bit there. But other than that, a pretty good uh, storyline uh, summary, I would think. It woke me up again at the end of the film there. Yeah, and, and to be fair, it did build, you know, did build up. Um, th- this film, uh, among other things, had a really slow start. And I'm not saying that's a fault, necessarily. No. But it was very slow. And, and, and I liked, it, a, it was a very slow start, and then it ended. Yeah, and, and I like that it didn't... You know, we, we talk a lot, um, uh, critics talk a lot, and filmmakers talk a lot about respecting the audience, and this movie really, really walked that line very closely, almost almost the opposite side of, of saying, you know what, we're not really, you're going to have to figure out what's going on here. We're not going to spell it out for you. There were many times when I was really trying to put things together and thinking, okay, he did this and that means this. And you, you know what I'm saying? Yes, it kind of reminded me of the British version of the uh, the, the girl with the dragon tattoo where it just, you know, it's like, we're going to play it how it is. We're going to tell how it is. If you, if you can keep up, you know, good for you. And if you can figure out why the story is great and interesting, good for you. You are our kind of audience. And, uh, <laughs> A that, most that, wanted audience. Yes. <laughs> yes. We are the most wanted men. Uh, I'll, really. I'll, I'll say to you this, this guy's previous movie, which I mentioned, the American, the George Clooney film, uh, was a movie in a similar situation. It's a, it's a movie about a hitman but it's very quiet and very subtle and uh, pretty slow paced. And the movie was marketed as this kind of action packed thriller. They basically took all of the scenes with guns or explosions in the movie and put them in the two and a half minute trailer. And as such, uh, when people went to see it, the, the audience cinema score ratings were very low. Uh, Audiences were very upset that they'd gone to see this exciting movie and uh, were so bored by it, basically, even though critics really liked it. 
Right. So with a most wanted man, I think they kind of recognized that sort of uh, miscommunication that took place. And uh, the, the marketing, I think, was a much better reflection of what the movie actually was this time around. Yeah, and I feel like often maybe filmmakers and, and, and studios and trailer makers do themselves such a disservice by advertising the, the film that they're not making. And, right. uh, and, and, and I, you're right. I don't think that was the case here. As a result, uh, 2.6 million on opening weekend is, is, is pretty, um, not good. But, um, I feel like there's much less negative buzz about it because people didn't go see a film they were expecting to be something different. Right. And it's important to keep in mind that, that 2.6 million is actually pretty decent when you consider that it was in a fairly small number of theaters across the country. That's true. It was 318. Was that the right number? I'm trying, right. to, trying to look here. Um, that sound, that, that so sounds three, right. I'm basically. sorry. 361 is what, okay. uh, is what Box Office Mojo says. It was in 361 mm. theaters. Um, and, and you're right. And when you look at it in that light, that's really good, actually. Yeah. Um, and especially for the type of film that it is. And I, I have a feeling this film would actually appeal to foreign audiences better than it would appeal to our, our local, uh, you know, our domestic. Um, uh, oh, yeah. Audience. Are you so, kidding? Cer- certainly, <laughs> yeah. Some European audiences would have a, a easier understanding necessarily of the uh, political culture that this film depicts. It's interesting, too, because um, three of your at least three of your primary actors. Am I, am I missing any, anybody? But but Philip Seymour Hoffman, Rachel McAdams and uh, well, I guess Willem Dafoe is not. But but OK, so two of them, Philip Seymour Hoffman and, and Rachel McAdams are very, you know, American and, and they're playing, you know, German roles. Um, which is an interesting choice, but but especially Philip Seymour Hoffman and to a lesser extent Rachel McAdams pulls off. You, you know, if you'd never seen Philip Seymour Hoffman in anything else, you'd believe he was German. Um, I th- uh, I thought that's true. It's worth mentioning Willem Dafoe is an American too. He was uh, born in Wisconsin. Okay, I wasn't sure um, yeah. about that. Although was, he plays uh, he plays European types so often, right? I, I guess he so. has that look or that feel or, or whatever you want to say. Because I wasn't sure. I, I was that's why I was backing out of it. Because I was like, eh, you know, and with a name like that, Willem, it's almost like maybe he's German or something. Well, and he, he's one of those people too. Like if you told me, oh, Willem Dafoe's British, I'd be like, yeah, okay, I can I can buy that. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm looking here. I'm trying to find out like is is he like of you know what descent he is of. Um, Let's see. Yeah, Wikipediaing I, the guy. Is that a is that, is that a term? Wikipedia. Well, you know, googling and Wikipediaing, and uh, yeah, sure, sure, absolutely. Uh, his his father's ancestry is French, Canadian, Swiss, and English, and his mother's ancestry is German, Irish, and Scottish. So he really is a little bit of everything. Yeah, it's kind of like most of us Americans. We, we right. You know, I, I know I have uh, quite the mix of, of blood in, in my running through my veins. So likewise, <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, I think while we're here talking about Philip Seymour Hoffman, um, you know, I you know, and talking about what a great job he did portraying a German, just in general, even the you know, I admittedly, again, going back to our previous part of our conversation, have not seen him in as many things as I would like. There are many things on my list to see that he's in. But um, I've seen him in a few things, and he's been good. But but this 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 is really good. I mean, I I know I I know, even though I may not have seen it, that this maybe is not his best performance ever. But he has a way. I think you mentioned this, Clark, in in your review uh, on Facebook. He has a way of of making it feel like it's his his biggest role. You, you know, mm-hmm. he he really kind of throws himself into it. And and I don't know to what extent like. You could really tell that it, at least, and, and I don't know to what extent this is acting, or if he was actually having health problems and was overweight, and but but you know, kind of the wheezing that he does, and and the just everything. It's like he just threw himself into this role. Um, 
you know, kind of like, uh, not not unlike in, in some ways, although a very different movie and a very different role, but uh, Heath Ledger as the Joker, you, you get that same sense that he really threw himself into this role and just poured yeah. himself into it. And just based on his track record, I have to believe that's the acting just because he, he's historically done that. I mean, he commits wholeheartedly to every part he plays and it's always so convincing, especially when he gets a really meaty, dramatic part. Uh, he can be such a commanding presence. And here, you know, John Le Carre wrote an article, a sort of an appreciation of Philip Seymour Hoffman, and he was talking about how his German accent didn't sound like any real-life German he had ever encountered. Oh, okay. But, but what I know as an American. <laughs> well, no, but, but that the accent that he was doing was so consistent and so just convincingly what it was, was that, that it didn't really matter. And he sounded more convincing than some of the others who were doing technically better German accents like Rachel McAdams, uh, just because he, he stuck with it uh, w- without wavering. And I really think, you know, consistency is, is a big factor is in a, as far as why that particular accent works so well. Yeah. And, and too, you know, when he, and I always wonder how I'm not a linguist. I don't study languages and, and I only have an appreciation for, you know, hey, to me, that sounds authentic. To me, it sounded authentic. And I wonder to what extent when you say, well, that doesn't sound like any German accent I've ever heard. You could when you're you know, we 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 notice it and we speak the language where you speak a different, uh, shall we say, almost dialect than I do. Joe has his different ways that he says things. Um, and even within, uh, say, the southern framework, you have, um, you know, I live in Nashville, so you've got kind of the southern bell Nashville kind of accent. And then you, you mm-hmm. go out down into Lobelville, where I live for many years, and you've got more of the hick town side of the of the southern accent so when you when you say i, I wonder when when he, when he says well it's not like any that i've ever heard how how relevant is is a is a statement like that i don't know you know yeah i, I don't know well he he's at least heard probably more than we have i would guess true, just true. just given that he's somebody who's sort of lived internationally much of his life and is at least closer to germany uh um, being british but uh, yeah, you're right. The accents are very broad and diverse. And one of the things I've heard uh, about American actors doing German accents is the biggest weakness is that they tend to focus specifically on the accents they've heard uh, from people playing Nazis in old movies. Right, right. And that that's actually a very specific German accent that you hear so often, that very sort of stringent, we are here to study your brain, you know, that right. whole thing. <laughs> and that's what everybody tends to do. Uh, so, so, but the, apparently there, there are quite a few different German accents and a lot of them are much, much softer and gentler than that. Right. It's, uh, it's kind of like, you know, you know, how, when we think of the British accent, we have kind of one thing that we do, but, but I have a several, you know, I have a podcast I listen to Joe. I'm sure you listen to him too. Mike Hurley, whose whose British accent is different from the ones that you hear kind of on TV. And, and, and I, I feel, I guess to me, what I felt like was that Philip Seymour Hoffman was capturing an everyday German uh, who had this accent, um, and and none of it was ever over the top. And, and like you were saying, you know, where he, you know, the 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 Nazi German accent is such an over the top accent, and and this felt just much more natural and flowing to me. I don't know. I'm, yeah. We're spending a lot of time on this accent, but <laughs> but but it was, it was a very natural, uh, very understated performance. And uh, one of the great things about Don Lecaray's books is he writes about people who work in the intelligence uh, industry, but they're not super spies like James Bond. They're not big superheroes. They're just ordinary people trying to do a job, and their lives tend to be unglamorous and a little bit sad, honestly. 
Yeah. And Philip Seymour Hoffman is so perfect uh, as that sort of character. He just, you know, captures the guy's whole essence very quickly. Absolutely. Joe, you haven't said much. Um, I had more well, I wanted to I've say. I've been thinking a lot. Ahead. Yeah, and I agree with all of your assessments thus far. I was going to ask you all the question, uh, what are some other films that were adapted from novels by the novelist? Uh, were, was Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy one of them? or Zero uh, Dark Tinker Tailor 30? Soldier Spy was an adaptation of one of his most acclaimed novels, uh, The Constant Gardener with oh, Ralph yeah. Fiennes and Rachel Weisz. Very good film. It goes way um, back. Yeah, there, there's. If you want to go way back to the 1960s, that's how long uh, Mr. Lucare has been around. Uh, there's a good movie called The Spy Who Came In from the Cold. Um, there's huh. a film uh, with Pierce Brosnan, who we were talking about earlier, The Tailor of Panama. Uh, that's a good movie. And then also you've got with Sean Connery from the early 90s, uh, a movie called The Russia House. Hmm. So uh, Mr. Lucare's work has been adapted on a semi regular basis for the big screen. And they're also making another one next year. Um, uh, I forget the title of this one uh, off the top of my head, but it's starring Ewan McGregor and is another spy thing of sorts. Oh, nice. Huh. I don't know if this is um, uh, kind of the way John Le Carre's novels tend to go, but I felt like the thing that made this one work so well, um, and, and, the, and the reason it's probably not going to be very popular with modern movie-going audiences, but but it is really you know well received by the critics, is probably the same same reasons. Um, but and and the reason that I liked it is that it felt very much like th- this is really what a spy's life would be like. Not not the right. version that you see on in the movies so much. Not not your. Uh, um, your uh, uh, born, you know, born identity kind of spy stuff, and not, you know, not your action hero, you know, whip out a gun and shoot him up over in Europe kind of thing. This feels like, and I don't know whether it is or not, but it feels like the real life thing, you know. And I think that's what makes this movie so appealing to me, anyway. Uh, I, I agree with you, and I think part of the reason for that, um, the reason Mr. Lecare knows that world so well and how it works, he actually, during the 50s and 60s, he worked for British intelligence. He was with MI5 and MI6, and then after he left them, uh, he began writing novels, naturally, about what he knew, which was uh, you know, how spies really worked and what their lives were really like. Yeah. And although this is in Germany instead of uh, Britain, you do get the sense that this is you know, probably much closer how things actually work than what we usually see in spy movies. Yeah. Hmm. Well, y'all have already covered a lot of good likes about the film. I want to echo everything that y'all have already said. And one thing that really struck me was how it's not very often that you have a film that can grow your anticipation and vest your interest in the story for the long haul where you're, you're kind of just eager to see what happens next when it doesn't have highs and lows. This film had very subtle highs and very subtle lows. It, for for the most part, felt like it was just growing and growing your anticipation all the way through. And when it was over, I didn't realize it was over. Like I was like, wow, that was two hours? It feels like everything that I just saw was uh, act one plus maybe 15 minutes of act two, and it's over? Wow. Uh, that really impressed me with how it ke- kept my attention for a rather deliberately slow-paced film and uh, developing a lot of characters uh, that nobody is expressing themselves, uh, you know, very outwardly. And no, th- there aren't very loudmouth characters or flamboyant monologues or bombastic chase scenes, or even though there was 
a chase scene or two, they were very um, deliberately uh, self-contained, like restricted uh, chase scenes that felt yeah, a little mean, bit more true to life, like you were saying, TJ. There were, there were two chase scenes. One was on foot, and it was fat, out of shape, very bad health <laughs> guy wheezing his way through the alley trying to find the people that he lost that he was spying on from the car. And the other one lasted five seconds where the, the, bag, you know, the, the bad CIA... Uh, German operatives and, and stuff show up in the black cars and whisk the you know people away and then it's over. So, but at the same time, it it you know it, it's kind of like you said, Joe. It was it was kept growing and building and at the very beginning of the film, I'd say fifteen minutes into the film or so, I even I was at the point of man, I don't know if this is going anywhere. I, I really. I want it to, I, I want it because I want to be able to say it doesn't have to be a, a super, you know, thrilling ride to keep me, but man, is this dull. But it just kept building. And at a certain point, I realized I was invested in the story. It, it kind of caught me off guard at some point where I was like, oh, how, 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 how's that going to work out? What's going to happen next? And, and it keeps building that way to the point where, and, and it, it's, it's really brilliant in the way it builds this tension to the scene where there's no action going on. Like like the like like the biggest action in the in the climactic scene, or I guess it would be the penultimate scene. It's not the climactic scene. We'll get to in spoilers later. <laughs> uh, but but it's 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 a pen stroke that you're waiting for, and it's yes. so brilliantly, you know, stressful and and full of tension. And if you weren't invested in these characters and in this story, that wouldn't work at all. But you are. I mean, you really at that point you realize just how much you care about what happens here. And yeah, I was on the edge of my seat just watching a guy holding a pen slowly signing documents. Uh, yeah. And that's really, really something. It reminds me of something that uh, an actor once said where he, he was so affected by uh, he went to see lots of different plays when he was younger. And, uh, you know, these these guys out on the stage would be all flamboyant and carrying them. But then one time he went to see a play with this actor that he'd never seen before. And he was up on stage and barely moved a muscle for, you know, 30 minutes of his performance. And then all of a sudden he raised his right arm. And that raising of his right arm had so much more meaning, meaning and dramatic tension than anything else that all these flamboyant actors and other plays had done. And that had a huge huh. impact on him as an actor. And I feel like that's sort of what we're looking at here, where other movies, you know, <clears throat> Michael Bay, for instance, <laughs> bad comparison, but but you know what I'm saying? They have these great, tenseful chase scenes and, and, and lots of tension and lots of climax and, you know, more climax and, and, you know, three or four different highs and lows. And this film just builds up to this one momentous moment that is nothing compared to these other huge, Huge films, but means so much more. Well, and you're absolutely right. And it reminds me, too, of another story Orson Welles once told about a time he was doing a play. And I forget the character's name, but let's just say his character was named Mr. Smith. He said, all during the first half of the play, the characters were talking about Mr. Smith. And they kept saying, Mr. Smith is coming. Oh, when Mr. Smith gets here, we're going to do this. Mr. Smith is going to be here tomorrow, and so on and so forth, and talking about him and talking about him. And then about midway through the play, he, playing Mr. Smith, walked on stage and everybody stood up and applauded him uh, because they were just so excited to see Mr. Smith. And they're just so blown away by him just walking on stage because they were anticipating it. Mm-hmm. And he, he was talking about, you know, how, how surprising that was, even though he did nothing. You know, he could do uh, a great Shakespearean play and uh, do all these great monologues and people wouldn't really have as dramatic as a response as they did to Mr. Smith walking into the room just because of how he had been built up. Mm hmm. 
And and for all of that, one of the great reasons that the anticipation grows for you in this film is that so many times I expected a gunshot. Uh, you know, somebody just, you know, the, there were several moments where they show the main characters walking to and from buildings and their cars. And I'm thinking, oh, okay, this is it. Tommy Blue is going to be shot from a sniper somewhere. And then they're going to develop this story about the assassin and how that leads Bachman into a, you know, a chase for that guy. And that will reveal something that will give away that this other man is really the bad guy after all. But no, they, they, they had none of that. Well, and and I, that was that was really smart storytelling. You, you bring up an interesting point. Was there? I'm trying to remember now. Was there ever a point at any time in this film when a gun was fired? Mm. I'm not I'm remembering sure. one off the top of my head. I don't but, think there was, which is interesting for a spy film. Anyway, go ahead. I'm yeah. sorry. I just I had to get that thought off the top of my head. Go ahead, Clark. You were going to say. Well, something. I was I was just going to say um, uh, that's an interesting point you bring up there because. Um, um, oh, well, now I, I, <laughs> I had a point and it just flew right out of my brain. Again, so, senility sorry. creeping in. I'm sorry. About the possibility. No, no, no. It was of, right uh, there. It was right there. And it just the wandered possibility away. of the assassin leading to clues that would give away villains or something like that. Right, right, right. Okay. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. It's back. Hello, brain. Um, <laughs> here we go. So uh, one of the things that's so fascinating about this, it's a contrast between how most movies work and how this movie works. Most movies, every scene is so sometimes needlessly just filled with purpose. Every scene is setting up something. Every scene is giving you something that you're going to need to know later or advancing the plot in some way or introducing some key element. And that's what this movie's playing on when you're expecting those gunshots. You're expecting it to do something big or important. And it is, but it's not doing what you think it's doing. Instead, it's giving you, you know, a very detailed look at the lives of these characters and who they are and what their life is like. And that's hugely important to what the film is trying to accomplish ultimately, but it's not what you generally expect from this sort of thing. So I think it's a very interesting kind of contrast with the way these movies usually operate. Yeah, I mean, in, in that same vein, on the same lines, you know, it, once in a while it would cut to him looking at his uh, pegboard of, of things. And you, you would, you know, if this was like most spy movies, he'd have like an epiphany. You'd almost see the light bulb over his head and he would grab a pen and he'd be drawing lines on that board from connecting, you know, the dots, so to speak, from from one thing that, that he had pinned up here to another thing. And like the movie showed us this and you keep expecting him to say, OK, he's going to make a connection. And it's like, no, it's just he just standing there thinking, you know, yeah. and and yeah, you're, you're right. I, I hadn't thought of that until you said that. But this movie uses several elements like that to mislead you and misguide you into thinking that this is this is where you're going and in fact it's it's going somewhere completely different. Mm. But we do see that, you know, with the climax, you could are y'all ready to talk about the climax? Sure, why don't we? Yeah. Thanks. Uh, I, I have mixed feelings about the climax because I feel like it it made its purpose very well well done. It was very uh genius, a great twist. Uh just uh kind of blown away but also really frustrated by it. Not disappointed, but frustrated because it it, it made sense of so many things that were coming along and it was like, I should have seen that coming now. And that's a a great example of good storytelling, very artful storytelling when they gave you so many clues, but they also have to um, carefully conceal the clues so that when the, the big reveal happens, you didn't really expect it. And then you can piece it all together and say, ah, I see how that would have all made sense. And I should have caught on earlier on. Are you saying that we had ears that did not hear and eyes that did not see? Yes. <laughs> and uh, for all the people who don't know what that means, I'm saying that like this film could have fallen into the cliches 
it felt original enough that I just didn't see it coming. And that was impressive. Yeah, I um to, to get back to a point you were started to make and I thought you were about to make and, and maybe you were gonna come back to it, but um the the frustration aspect. I feel like you were supposed to be frustrated at the end of the film. Like like yeah. that's kind of where it leaves you, uh, is is this frustration that this could have been this could have had a happy ending, but people are stupid. Well and it was so it was so close to it, and you know, the Hoffman character and the people who was working with it achieved so much. They had helped an innocent man, they had made significant progress in their sort of larger long term sort of battle in the war on terror and so on and so forth. And all of that just in a matter of moments, just completely undone uh by the sort of bureaucrats impatiently storming in and taking charge of things. And it really, I mean, it, it had a huge impact on me, certainly. It just hit me like a punch in the stomach. And I should have seen it coming. I really should have, especially knowing that Mr. Lacare is a, you know, writer with a fairly cynical view of the world. <laughs> right. But, but man, it, it, still, it still just affected me hugely. And partially because of what happened, but also because of the way Mr. Hoffman played it in those closing moments. Um, you know, the whole movie... He's so quiet. He's so even-handed. He's so, you know, just sort of calm and collected in that same sort of one-note kind of personality. And then he just sort of, you know, has this Explodes. very brief just kind of explosion of anger and sadness and frustration. Yeah, it was great. And, and yeah. man, it was just so powerful. And those moments after that happens when he's just sitting there in his car and he's just sitting and thinking and he doesn't know what to do or where to go. Yeah. And if I can, if I can sort of talk about the very, very end of the movie, um, since we're in sort of spoiler territory anyway. Please. Uh, you know, all throughout the movie, we see these little scenes. It's clear that he probably drinks a little bit too much. He seems <laughs> to be drinking every time that he stops somewhere, and people comment on it every time they see him. You know, you need to take it easy on that and sort of thing. I think we see him uh, adding liquor to his coffee yes, twice even. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, it, it's such a brilliant little touch because – when he just drives a short distance and parks on the sidewalk and gets out of his car at the end of the movie, the movie doesn't tell us exactly where he's going, but because of that, we know exactly where he's going, yes, you know, yes. and it's, it's such a brilliant, subtle, just sad touch to the end of that movie. And one, which I found, you know, um, additionally affecting, uh, because Philip Seymour Hoffman was somebody who ultimately, you know, succumbed to drug abuse and uh, that addiction that he had, you know, just kind of let get hold of him. And it added an additional just kind of heartbreaking resonance to the end of that movie. Yeah, you're right. I thought of that, too. Um, but, you know, I, I wanted to I just wanted to throw in something here. We should have uh, should have seen the end of the way that the film ended, uh, I think, should have been telegraphed to us by the the, the casting of, of Mrs. Frank Underwood. Excuse me, uh, Martha Sullivan. <laughs> <laughs> um, you, we should have seen exactly what she was up to. Right. But, but. And it's a, a tribute to her performance, too, that, uh, you know, she was able to hold her cards pretty close to the vest. And uh, I, I genuinely didn't know um, whether or not she should be trusted. And initially, she seemed slippery, but she seemed to be making genuine efforts to uh, earn Gunther's trust uh, in, yeah, she, in genuine ways. And so, yeah, it, it really surprised me. It did. It shouldn't have, but it did. She she really turned the charm on in just the right way. Not, it, it, you know, where you... 
you get these uh, slimy, slippery, shady characters that are you know turning on the charm, and you go, "There's no way." But with with Robin Wright, she she had that way of of kind of just you know I think maybe she is on his side, and nope, 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 nope. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, it very uh, very well played by by her as well. Uh, and at first, uh, and I was just trying to get past her being you know Mrs. Underwood, and I just haven't. It's not been that long since I've been watching House of Cards. It, you know, and she she was able to kind of uh, get past that pretty quickly. So you know, she's also the princess in the Princess Bride. Does that bother you? No, because she was such a different person back then. She such really was. Person. It's it's still hard for me to think of her as that character I, I, just because she's so different now. Yeah, she she it, it, there is no like like my brain has no trouble with that at all. There there is nothing in Buttercup Princess Buttercup that that feels like the current Robin Wright. <laughs> Uh, Fair enough. So, so one one person that we haven't talked about yet that has been getting mostly negative reviews. Like when people say bad things about this film, they usually talk about Rachel McAdams. I didn't have that much of a problem with her. I, I don't, you know, who who holds up next to uh, to Philip Seymour Hoffman? But you know, other than that, I thought that she did a fine job. I think she does her character very well, and if you have a problem, it's not so much with her performance as it is with the character, because yeah. that character doesn't necessarily fit into the story, except that she actually has an important part to play. Like, she does. you would not want her in this story, and except for the fact that she has an important part to play. To me, the character, you're right, it, it's not, and, and I think maybe people are mixing it up, because they usually complain about the actress Rachel McAdams in this film from the reviews that I've read, but for me, it was the character that doesn't hold up well to scrutiny. Like, allegedly, she's this lawyer, but, like, we never see her doing any law things, and, and she just seems to be a bleeding heart who is trying to get something done, you know, outside the law. I don't know. It, the, the, to me, the character maybe didn't quite fit. Uh, Clark, you haven't weighed in on this yet. Uh, I, I liked the performance well enough. Yeah, her character isn't one of the more interesting ones. I, I did buy the character, you know, uh, because simply because the situation would require uh, considerable secrecy. So you would almost have to act uh, as if you were operating undercover. And this would have to sort of occupy a huge portion of your attention. It would have been nice if we could have seen a little bit more of her outside life and so on. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I, I liked the character. I liked the performance, but certainly not the most compelling part of the film. And my real complaint in the actress department would be that we didn't get to see more of the character who sort of played uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman's right-hand woman. Um, they yeah. seem to have an intriguing an intriguing relationship, and I would have liked to know a little bit more about uh, about the two of them and and their working relationship together. Side note, did she look at, to all at, to anybody else at all like an older Famke Jansen? I kept, a little bit. Yeah, I kept like, wait, oh no, that's not Famke Jansen. It's, it's the beginning of the movie. I'm like, who is that? Is that no, it's not her. It was weird. Anyway, um I I do agree like like they they kind of showed that that there was some sort of relationship there between the two maybe but we never really got any like it never really went anywhere. Right, and you got the impression that they were just too busy with work, honestly, <laughs> to pursue anything like that. Yeah, probably so. Maybe but, that's maybe that works as, as you know, like that. And then also, I, you know, I don't know when the movie was shot exactly, but uh, Daniel Bruhl, who's such a good actor, uh, was was the highlight of Ron Howard's Rush last right, year. Right, right. Is in this movie, and he has nothing to do. Absolutely nothing. Yeah, he's know? wasted. So I, I was disappointed to see him in such a tiny part. Was it shot before or after Rush? 
I don't know, but he's been he's been around and doing prominent stuff for a while. I know he was also kind of the co-lead with Benedict Cumberbatch in The Fifth Estate. Right, which um, which uh, that, that yeah, movie left a lot that, that, to be desired. Yeah, no, uh, that movie was not good. But <laughs> um, I wanted it to be good too. We we I mean we talked yeah. about it already, but I wanted it to be good because of the subject matter. But it just didn't. It just didn't do it. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, it it was very sloppy. But uh, yeah, I mean, I liked him well enough in Rush, and and you would think that that would you call that maybe his breakout role in Rush? Um, if I had to pick a breakout role, I, I guess that sort of brought him mainstream attention. It would be him playing the the young German and Quentin Tarantino's Inglorious Bastards. Okay, uh, that that was kind of the first part that people were like, oh, that guy, he's he's interesting, and he started getting you know more mainstream roles. Yeah, well, he but certainly Rush seems... is his first like big sort of lead performance in an English language movie, certainly. Right. Yeah, and and he just seems sort of sidelined here. It, it is kind of frustrating, but it, again, you've, you've got to you, you got to pick and choose your your characters. You can't focus on every one of them, and you know, right. Philip Seymour Hoffman or Daniel Bruhl. Well, I mean, Philip Seymour Hoffman's going to win. The movie's about him, right? So, um, and uh, we haven't talked about him much either. But Willem Dafoe turns in a solid supporting performance here. Yeah, it's solid. I I have not traditionally liked him that well in the roles that he's been in. Um, I I felt like um as much as I like Spider Man, the first Spider Man, I feel like he's the weakest link in that movie. Ah, uh, see, I, I disagree. Uh, <laughs> Nor- Norman Osborn. Now, I don't like the Green Goblin. I think the Green that, Goblin that, is kind of silly. That may be what I, it is. I like Norman Osborn a lot. Uh, to me, he's the most compelling part of that movie. And everything where it's Willem Dafoe and the green mask isn't there works for me really well. I think maybe uh, everything right. that's the Green Goblin, though, just is really kind of clunky. Maybe that's what it is. And, and maybe that's kind of biased me against Willem Dafoe because... Um, oh, what movie was it I saw him in recently? I'm, I'm going to have to look it up now, but you guys riff on something while I look up Willem Dafoe. Well, as a whole, yeah. I was going to say that Willem Dafoe's the performance is actually, uh, I mean, like in its own right, in a different way, in a different light. If you're thinking about his past performances and what he can bring to it as an actor, he is giving as solid a performance as Phillips is. And ultimately, I would say his is my favorite character because uh, it, it, it his character has a very awkward part to play. He wants to be this man of power with uh, you know a lot of credibility, and he's forced to be in a very uh, you know d- difficult circumstance where the the power is taken out of his hands because he knows he's dealing with the authorities. He's dealing with spies. He's dealing with national security. He's dealing with other people's lives. And it's not just about his banking practices or in, in all of his past success has not prepared him for this situation. And you can kind of see that written on the man's worn face, you know, like um, he realizes he has to play his cards close to the chest and he's not exactly sure when to play his hand, you know, and he, he, I saw that coming through. I thought it was very uh, artful acting. And yeah. um, it, it's a strong performance. I, I can't agree that it's, quite at the same level just because I think, you know, Philip Seymour Hoffman pretty much owns this movie, but at the same time he has the part in the movie. I mean, it's it's his movie to begin with. So, uh for for the role he was given, uh, Willem Dafoe did a very fine job, and to me, he's one of the most reliable uh kind of character actors out there. He always uh brings just the right essence to whatever part he's asked to play, and he can do 
sympathetic or he can do sad or he can do creepy and he's asked to do creepy a lot he does do but, creepy <laughs> but uh yeah he's always effective at whatever he's asked to do i found the role i was thinking of uh, that i I've, I've recently within the last year or maybe year and a half i finally saw clear and present danger and uh he was he was in that um, yeah and he did a good job in that uh, interestingly he was, play- he- was he playing like a spanish character yes yes um he was uh oops i've lost a uh, john clark Let's okay see. Um, John Clark is a recurring character in the Jack Ryan novels written by Tam Cl- Tom Clancy. Blah, blah, blah. That eh, doesn't give me much. Well, anyway, um, I also saw that he was in The Aviator, which I don't remember what role he played in The Aviator. That's He very- played a teeny tiny itsy bitsy role. Um, he played someone who either he showed up late at night to have a late night meeting either with Howard Hughes or it might have been Howard Hughes's lawyer at that point because Howard was a uh, holed up in his room. Hmm. But, uh, yeah, it's just a one-scene part. Okay, that's remember. probably why I don't remember it. Yeah. Uh, and I've seen The Aviator recently again, so which is a fantastic film, by the way. Yes. Uh, mm. Yeah, so the the one thing that, I mean, we've talked a lot about Philip Seymour Hoffman, um, but... Can, uh, I, this- can I add a complaint? I, I don't want to, you know, hog it or anything, but... No, go ahead. Okay, uh, one of the, as a, just a, from a... Uh, sort of uh, the perspective of trying to get everything I could out of the film. I have to admit that for a very complex story and one that was probably fleshed out better than novelization, I felt like at times, like with, uh, you know, the first viewing of How to Train Your Dragon, or not How to Train Your Dragon, uh, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, it's easy to get lost. <laughs> Don't confuse them now, Joe. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's so easy to get those mixed up. The Girl with um, the Dragon Tattoo is one of my favorite children's movies. <laughs> Clark, what not like that how to train your dragon which is so just violent and disturbing i don't know Clark, i don't even know <laughs> i don't either i can't I'm even okay okay so, yeah ahead, so it just in the first viewing it's a little bit difficult to follow some of the things that they're saying and their intentions and because this is by culture and they there's bureaucracies involved and you're also seeing how these different people are trying to deal with each other and you're trying to cope with your inability to understand their accent at times as much as it's intriguing and very enjoyable to listen to, to their clever accents uh i had to really think hard and pay to pay attention to the dialogue or uh, I felt like I was completely lost if I just missed the slightest piece of an exchange because they hardly ever really just come out and just say something and as artful as that is and probably, you know, probably helps repeating viewings. Um, it just kind of, at times, I hate that lost feeling. Like, well, based on what these guys are doing in the scene, I think that the good guys are not happy and that the bad guys must be happy because that guy is looking like he's scared. And you know, I don't know what he said, but it looks bad for this guy. You know, you know what I mean? Like, you get that, you go into your subconscious often when you're watching a movie. You go into autopilot, and, you, and if you miss something, you try to look for other cues to figure out what the movie is t- trying to tell you. And because this is a very um, one-note sort of movie throughout the ma- majority, you know, like you said about one-note uh, character of Philip Seymour Hoffman's Bachman, is really oft- often a one-note film. 
And because it does this, it's hard to tell what the story, where the story is going, and what exactly did they say? What determination did they make between uh, Tommy and uh, Annabelle? Right there, I'm not exactly sure. You know, I couldn't tell what, the, what was exactly going on a few times, but um, it's a minor nitpicky sort of thing, to be honest. No, no, I mean, I, I get what you're saying. I would have to agree. I, I would say my that, that, that perhaps this film's deepest flaw is that it almost asks too much of the audience, like. If it would have just, I mean, because when I said it rode the line and almost went too far, I think a couple of times it strayed across the line of not telling us what was going on to the point where it was frustrating, like you're saying. Um, I, I certainly felt that, and I think a repeated viewing would help with that, but I I, I feel like it, it, it just came shy of the mark there, just, just a little. I, I can see where you guys are coming from with this, but I think it's also sort of rooted in, you know, the way that modern movies treat audiences that we're kind of used to being babied a little bit by the sure. movies that we watch. No, no doubt. And, you know, to, to, to some degrees more than others, but like, you know, I was thinking about this when I was watching Transformers, uh, the most recent one. Uh, you know, Optimus Prime will get angry about something and then some other character will go, oh, he's going to get mad now, you know, right. this, uh, <laughs> where they're like actually explaining things that are incredibly obvious. And a lot of movies, sometimes in subtler ways than that, tend to do that just out of fear of, of losing people and making sure that even if you get distracted and start thinking about your day tomorrow, that you can look back up and be like, oh, well, obviously that's going on. This is a movie that really requires your full attention. I mean, you can't zone out for a few minutes here. Nope. But but uh, it, I, I personally appreciate that. Um, I like it when a movie asks you to sort of meet it halfway a little bit. And you may be right that it goes uh, across the line here or there once or twice. But in general, I'd far rather have more movies like this than movies that go the opposite way and just sort of, you know, insult the audience as if they're stupid children who can't understand anything. Oh, I completely right. agree. Right, I agree. I agree. Yeah. Well, I mean, we've talked a lot about Philip Seymour Hoffman, but uh, ultimately, I, I do think that this um, this movie is, I, I would say, a pretty great uh, send off for for the the guy. Um, I, I think that it's it's one of his better roles, as far as I can tell, uh, and it, it plays well to his strengths as an actor. Just that he he has such that deadpan. Uh, uh, the first role that I ever saw him in was in Mission Impossible Three, and and, mm-hmm. and I I noted then that that kind of he has a way. Of bringing intensity to a role without, you know, he doesn't raise his voice. And so, like, like in Mission Impossible Three, he's sitting in the plane, he goes, "You know, I'm going to kill you. Yeah, I, I'm going to kill you. It's, you know, it, and it's not. It's like I'm going to kill you, man. I mean, it's not that at all. It, and and it, it, it's so it, intense, you know. And you know, he's he's so much scarier because of that. Because it's this casual confidence. He's saying it like, "Yeah, I'm going to go to McDonald's later tonight." You know, it's this, this, this is going to happen. It's not even, you know, it doesn't even feel like a threat. It feels like a statement of fact. And that's just what seems so scary about it. Um, right. And that's the same, even though it's a different, different character and it's not threatening as much, he still brings that intensity to the role without ever hardly, you know, like, like the first time he raises his voice is in that last scene when he basically just lost everything. Yeah. And, 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 and it was so much more powerful like that. So, so this film definitely plays to his strengths. And, and this is basically his, I mean, we're going to, we're going to see him in the Hunger Games, but he's not leading that film. This right, is his uh, final lead role, basically. Yes. And I, I do agree. I think it's a fine send off. And, you know, however good the Hunger Games performances might be, and I do think there's reason to believe they will be good based on his work in the second film. Um, yeah, th- this really seems like it's, it feels like his final movie, even if it's not. Yeah, this is basically goodbye. Yeah, and uh, I really am. I have to say, I'm really going to miss that guy. He's he's just was a phenomenal talent, and um, 
yeah, a, a tremendous actor, and he left us while he was still in his prime. Definitely, I, I feel like had he continued on, had he had he lived, that we would have seen even better movies from him. Like he, mm-hmm. he feels like the sort of actor that would have, um, you know, sort of in the. Uh, uh, I, I hate to even make this comparison because it's not apt in so many ways, but in a way, like, sort of like how Patrick Stewart continues to turn in better and better performances, um, in my opinion. Um, I'm trying to think of another actor that would be a better, more apt comparison, but but you know, you know the type. Where uh, Sean Connery is a great example. He 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 gets better with age, <laughs> except for the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Yeah. But sure. Anyway, uh, <laughs> so I feel like that's what we would have seen from Philip Seymour Hoffman. So it's definitely sad, and yet at the same time, I'm I'm glad that we got such a wonderful film from him as his last film. Mm-hmm. Joe, Amen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean the, the first thing that i uh that i tweeted uh well, maybe in the second thing after i got out of the uh theater yesterday no it was the first thing was basically uh wow the, the the one thing this film told me was we lost one of the one of the greats we lost one of the great actors of this of this generation so yeah all right uh final thoughts uh any any remaining likes dislikes uh star ratings uh, let, let's get them out there on the table mm. Uh, I, I'll, I'll just try to sum up everything we've already said. I think the, the film is cool and calm, thrilling, builds anticipation. Then it delivers an unfortunate climax with great amounts of heart all the same. It makes you really ponder like, you know, another perspective as a film that seems uh, to really capture an international flair, the experience of these people in this country, in this other country. Yeah, I I can better relate to them uh, as an American from a film like this than I can from a lot of other thrillers. And so it, it does a great job. It treads lightly into the world of realistic spies and terrorism and attempts to faithfully depict a conflict between our worldviews and Germany's. So, with all that said, what's with this crazy low star rating you're giving it? It's really calm. It is a really <laughs> sober film. It's it's a really uh, it's a really focused film, and yeah. it's not very high on an entertainment value. It's 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 uh, it is so. Thought provoking. So, so, Clark, so you live old. closer. Can you please drive over there and knock some sense into this well, guy? So, so, what I think I'm hearing through through the fog of words is that you found it <laughs> a little bit boring. Dull. Maybe. Yeah, I did. I mean, okay. like not humongously mm. so, mm. but because Mm-mm-mm. of the whole, it was just one of those things. It's like, mm. well, I'm glad I saw the film, but. It's going to be hard to recommend it to a lot of people mm. in America because you know what? We just like Because we're films. stupid? <laughs> no, no. It's not even that. It, I think people here are much more intelligent than we give them credit for, and that's one of the reasons we do, like a good film like we, this. Do we live in the same country? Um, last I checked, uh, I don't know. You live in Tennessee. That's sort of a place unto itself. But I do think that... Um, People are more intelligent than we'll give them credit for. But that said, when you go to the movies, I go back to my previous. We have statement. been given a we have been given a uh, sort of uh, a reason to believe that when we spend twelve dollars on a movie ticket at matinee or whatever the crud, you know, I mean, I paid twelve dollars to see this film, and I had to drive thirty minutes to get there. And you and wanted that's a stuff very to explode experience and go boom and. 
You didn't not get even. It. <laughs> no, you know me. I, I, so would the I star don't... rating be higher if the theater had been closer and cheaper? Ah, uh, I. <laughs> <laughs> I like that you have to think about it. <laughs> I am thinking about this. Like I, I, I know it's crazy, but you know I saw Spider Man Two for a buck and I didn't make it a better. So Spider Man Two is what five out of five stars. No, I'm saying it didn't make it a better experience. <laughs> okay. What I what I am saying is that it wasn't very good in the way of entertainment value. And I, uh, I can't I'm sorry, but I I think that the, a film like this could do better and reach a broader audience with a very powerful story. If it were if dumbed it were, down. If it were not dumbed down, <laughs> but found a way to be more entertaining to a broader audience. Okay. All right. What, I don't did think, you did you ever say what your I star rating was? Bro- three out of five stars. Okay. Right. It's an honest. It's an honest star rating. All right. All right. That's the most important thing. That's you got to be. You, you have to be true unto yourself. Don't don't. You know. You you'll have to put up with our teasing and our our carrying on. But but you have to be true to yourself. Sure. I mean, okay. Think and about us, it this but, way. But do you think that the characters in this movie would like the movie as well as you do? Would the characters in the movie like the movie as well as I do? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that that's I not think, really a fair question. Would, would, um, what I is the character? I think the characters in this movie, for what it's worth, would have a great appreciation for this movie um, for for capturing their life. So, I, and I think you know because this is what they do all the time, they would find it naturally more compelling um, than the average person. Mm. They would know exactly what's going on all the time. <laughs> What is that World War II movie? I I can't believe that I. Uh, it's black and white. Steven War Spielberg. Um, Schindler's List. Schindler's List. Would the characters in Schindler's List like Schindler's List? I mean, it's just not a fair question. You can't, you can't <laughs> ask the question from that perspective. That doesn't work. You're right. Uh, that was really mean of me, TJ. Okay. Um, so so Clark, why don't you bring a little bit of sense back to this uh, conversation, if you would, please. Um. Well, I can, I can, you know, I can respect Joe's point of view because it is an honest point of view. And if I'm being honest, um, I think there are going to be a lot of people out there who might feel the same way. There's a reason this movie isn't playing in every theater across the country and that it's making modest sums of money. This isn't the sort of thing that, you know, American moviegoers naturally gravitate to. However, this is true for those who do, um, you know, uh, appreciate a story which is well told and has strong characterization and a strong sense of place and something to say, uh, you know, I I think it's very worthwhile. You do have to meet it halfway. You do have to pay attention. But it's certainly not an incomprehensible film, and it's one which I really think rewards, uh, you know, paying attention. And Spotlight's a terrific central performance from Philip Seymour Hoffman. Uh, He's just so great in this, uh, this role and just makes me miss him all the more. And, uh, yeah, it's a sad story, sometimes a difficult one, but a very worthwhile one, um, well-crafted in pretty much every regard, technically. I really liked it, and um, I wish there were more movies like it. I'd give it a rating of four stars out of five. Yeah, and I'm, I'm just can – I, can I just say ditto, echo what, sure. everything you just uh, <laughs> said there? Um, I, I think that it's definitely a very smart movie that, that really does reward you for paying attention. Um, it it – um, it captures, I think, the essence of of a of a more true essence of what a, a, being a spy really would would be, um, and it turns in one of the great performances from Philip Seymour Hoffman on his send off film, um, and uh, we will certainly miss him. 
And uh, I give the uh, film four out of five stars as well. Uh, Rotten Tomatoes uh, shows that the critics are at 90% uh, on this film. Um, that may not be as good as Guardians of the Galaxy right now is tracking on Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> Go but, figure. <laughs> but uh, we have yet to see all the reviews for that. So anyway, um, yeah, so 90% is pretty good from the critics. 74% from the audience. Those who have seen it never, uh, you know, have been mostly positive. So, uh, yeah, I, I think this film is well worth seeing. Please get yourselves to the theater to see this film. I know that's going to be hard to do if you haven't seen it yet and you're choosing this weekend and you're saying Guardians of the Galaxy or, you know, Most Wanted Man. Guardians of the Galaxy is probably going to win, but you do need to see this film. It is a fantastic film and uh, a great performance from from all, really. So. And in fairness, I think part of the reason that Guardians of the Galaxy is getting higher ratings on Rotten Tomatoes is I heard the critics only had to pay $4 and drive like five minutes to see it. So, <laughs> Joe, I think, you, I, I think it's going to be hard to live this one down, buddy. <laughs> I tease. Uh, <laughs> all right. Um, well, this is uh, 90, episode 99, Clark, is your uh, final appearance uh, in replacement of Ch- – uh, not in replacement of, but uh, – uh, chose the wrong words poorly. But in, in uh, filling in the shoes of Chad, you were supposed to be my co-host throughout this month, and you have been faithful. Joe has returned. A lot of things have happened while Chad's been gone. He's not going to recognize the podcast. It's going to be completely <laughs> different. Uh, but uh, I do appreciate you being here, man. It was uh, I didn't know what I was going to do, and I I sent you an email, and uh, you responded, and uh, you were uh, you're a good you know you saved the podcast. What can I say? Well, I, I wouldn't go that far, but I certainly appreciate the the uh, invitation. It's been a lot of fun. I really enjoyed talking these movies with you, and. Uh, yeah, it's, it's it's been a great experience. So hopefully one of these days I'll be able to stick my head back in and say hello. Well, we have another Hobbit movie to review, and you've been on every one That's of those true. so far. Uh, I I don't have any – I'm not looking forward to that at all. <laughs> <laughs> but have you seen that poster, though? That poster looks great. Uh, which one? The, the one with the dragon. Um, or don't they all have dragons? Well, but this is the one, it's the one with the dragon. It's, it's, it's the, you would call it the dragon poster. Um, it, it looks pretty great. Okay. I guess I have. I mean, I'm not it. saying I, that it makes a great movie. There have been plenty of bad movies with cool posters, but here, it's a cool poster. Here's the thing. You know, whenever I see news that has the word Hobbit in it, I tend to not want to click on it, <laughs> but I don't know. Um, my wife thinks I'm crazy. She, she's really looking forward to the film. So. Um, and we'll, we'll review it. We'll, we'll see it. Uh, I, I will not be seeing it in HFR because that was a poor experience, but anyway, next week, uh, Chad ostensibly will be returning. I spoke to him, uh, on, uh, instant message, uh, a couple hours before the podcast. And he said, yeah, as far as I know, it should, should be good. I've got a lot of, lot on his, he's got a lot on his plate. He said, but he's, he's trying to clear a schedule. He's back in the States. He, uh, he's doing well, so he will be returning to the podcast next week with me and Joe, hopefully. And we will be talking about Guardians of the Galaxy. Woo-hoo! Um, I'm really looking forward to that. Um, I, I've I've really been enjoying everything that I've read and, and watched about this film, and it's receiving really positive reviews. So, um, For episode 100 of the Movie Bite podcast. And, uh, you know... Indeed. TJ, I, I just want to congratulate you and you too, Joe, since you've been with the podcast for a pretty good chunk of its lifespan uh, on making it to 100 episodes. You know, there are a lot of podcasts that get started out there and a lot of times people, you know, lose interest or get busy with stuff after a while and they fizzle away. But you've made it. You're at 100 episodes and hopefully there are many, many more to come. 
And uh, congrats, man. That's that's a great achievement. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. And uh, I do I do hope that uh, we have something useful to add to the conversation. You know, we all bring our own perspectives. And, uh, you know, it's something uh, – and I, I don't know how you feel, Joe. It's something where I feel like um, I'm enjoying it more now than when we first started the podcast because I feel more comfortable and confident. I know it's something that I can do. I'm not – I used to worry – to you know, I, I used to work religiously on the show outline, you know, days before the – the episode and go, oh man, I don't know if I'm going to have something to say and how am I going to say it? Mm. And, and now I realize I can, I can even, even if I have to whip up the show line, you know, 30 minutes, the show outline 30 minutes before, <laughs> well, um, I, I know that I'll be able to do a show, you know? Yeah. So. Well, because our podcast is free, I'll give it five stars. <laughs> Enough of the meta conversation. Uh, Clark, um, thank you so much for being here. If people want to keep up with you and, uh, you know, your work and, and, you know, kind of just follow you, you have a podcast, you have a website, you write reviews, all kinds of good stuff uh, and highly recommended. Where can people keep up with you at? Well, I write reviews uh, for a website for DVDVerdict.com. Uh, myself and a staff of other writers write DVD and Blu-ray reviews over there. Plus, I have a podcast on that site, The Sounds and Sights of Cinema. It focuses on movie music. And there are other little odds and ends here and there that I write for, but those are sort of the, the, that's sort of the central hub of my work at the moment. And that's where folks can find me. All right, dvdverdict.com. Mm. Joe, you've kind of revived your online presence. You 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 quit the podcast for a while. You quit writing on your blog. You kind of disappeared off the face of the earth. I would I would message you and you'd be like, uh, I might respond to that in a couple days. No, 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 but uh, you're back. Uh, you've been writing on your blog regularly. You said traffic's picking up and you have a lot of good things to say. Where, where can people f- keep up with you at? Okay, thank you, TJ. Yeah, I'm on Twitter. My handle is underscore Joe Darnell and my website is joedarnell.com. And uh, I'd be glad to see you show up there. Check out my other stuff. Sometimes I talk about movies. You'll always find a link back to the good stuff at Movie Byte too. Cool. Uh, all right. If you want to find uh, show notes for this episode, those will be at moviebyte.com slash mbpodcast slash 99. That's where you'll find the links for all the things that we talked about. Uh, if you want to keep up with me, uh, you can do that at Twitter. Uh, if you want to keep up with my daily rantings and ramblings and, and you know, whatnot, uh, that's uh, twitter.com slash tjdraperpro. You can click the follow button and keep up with me there. Um, additionally, I do write every day at moviebyte.com. Uh, sometimes a couple things, sometimes, you know, four or five things, sometimes reviews, sometimes I post podcasts, you know. <laughs> so keep up with me at moviebyte.com. Uh, and we would appreciate if you drop by iTunes and give this show a rating of five stars. We will accept no less. Uh, so just go to the search bar in the iTunes store, type in Movie Byte, M-O-V-I-E-B-Y-T-E, and we will be the first results, and uh, mm-hmm. you will see a checkbox there. You can ignore those stars to the left. Go all the way to the right. Give us five stars. Remember, it's free. That's right. It's free. It's free for everybody. Free for all. And you only have to walk to your computer. That's right. <laughs> Well, next up is Guardians of the Galaxy. Make sure you see that this weekend. I know it's such a chore. It's going to be such a bad, terrible film. But but go to see it anyway for the people. It's for the people. Go to see Guardians of the Galaxy. We'll be talking about that next week, hopefully with Chad, and it'll be me and Chad and Joe. And until that time, have fun at the movies. See you guys. Bye. Good night. Good night.